It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 163, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Chandler Briggs of Hayshaker Farm and his partner, Layla Schneider, make a living with about six acres of vegetables on the edge of Walla Walla, Washington. And now in their fourth season of production, Chandler and Layla do most of their farming with horses and sell their produce through two farmer's markets, restaurants, and a grocery store. Chandler takes us deep into farming with horses, including how he uses them on the farm and how he learned to work with his horses and how they learned to work with him. We also discuss the tools he uses, how they fit into Hayshaker Farm's fertility plan, and how the farm is set up to work with the horses. We also dig into marketing in Walla Walla, a relatively small market, but one that is growing and changing as a wine industry develops in the valley, along with the accompanying tourist business and demographic changes. Chandler shares how they stand out at their farmer's market and how they've set up their market stand to maximize sales as they find their niche in this expanding marketplace. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Haas Tools, and Haas Tools is the complete solution for all your market farming tools and supplies. From wheel hose, precision seeders, and heavy-duty seed trays, drip irrigation, and organic pest control, they have you covered. Get free shipping and outstanding customer service at HaasTools.com. And by Vermont Compost Company. Founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by Local Food Marketplace. Helping farms and food hubs around North America implement easy-to-use online ordering systems that integrate with a full management system for order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Contact localfoodmarketplace.com to learn more. Chandler Briggs, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. It's an honor to be here. Really glad that you could join us today. I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Hayshaker Farm. Where are you guys located? How much are you growing and, and where are you selling it and how are you selling it? Sure thing. So Hayshaker Farm is uh, about to enter its fourth growing season. We're located in College Place, Washington, which is a uh, adjacent city to Walla Walla in the southeast corner of the state. Um, we're in the city limit. Uh, we lease eight acres and growing about six acres under cultivation for various uh, vegetables and fruit row crops. Um, we sell almost everything here in Walla Walla within about a five-mile radius of the farm with about 10% going to a one farmer's market uh, about an hour's drive away in the Tri-Cities. We are uh, using draft horses on the property for plowing, disking, harrowing, and all sorts of field work, including some cultivation and harvest. Um, we are, uh, I should mention that I, I, I farm the, uh, with my partner, Layla. And uh, the two of us own and operate the business. We have three employees starting uh, this season. Going into your fourth year on the farm, growing six acres of vegetables and in a, in a relatively small marketplace, are you guys making a living on the farm? The, uh, the short answer to that question is yes, we are making a living. It's been varied year to year because we're still making some larger um, investments in the farm. For example, we just bought a new box truck, which... Uh, We'll find out how we end up depreciating that, but the, the short answer is yes. Um, we are in a uh, very supportive community in Walla Walla, and even though it's a small city of, of about 33,000 people in a county of 60,000, there's three colleges, a very uh, fast-growing wine tourism industry, 
and a lot of people interested in uh, purchasing local vegetables. So it's, there's a high demand and we're able to sell almost everything that we grow and we are attempting to sell as much as we can year round to help keep the customers happy and keep them reminded of the fact that we're here and, uh, and growing food. When you say that you're selling vegetables year round, does that mean you're growing vegetables year round? So we do have um, a winter here, which, you know, uh, stops growth of most crops in the field. So what we do is harvest a lot of roots in the fall, pretty much uh, the end of October and the beginning of November. We're still working very full days, uh, harvesting carrots, beets, turnips, and the like to uh, wash and pack, put in our walking cooler, and then sell them throughout the winter. We also have uh, winter squash and potatoes in a root cellar, and we are attempting to put up some high tunnels this year in order to expand our winter greens offering next winter. I always have this question when I talk to people who are farming with horses, whether it's on the podcast or elsewhere, but like organic vegetable farming is hard enough as it is. So why make it harder by doing it with horses? Well, I, I might argue with the premise of the question, Chris, because I don't necessarily think it's harder. Um, I, I think that it's just different. Um, I should also say that we do have a tractor on the farm. We're not exclusively horse powered. However, the tractor is not used for any tillage or cultivation. It's, we only use it for the pallet forks and for the mowing deck. Should we need to um, mow some weeds around the perimeter of the farm, we have like a little thistle patch that we need to keep mowed down. So um, we do have a tractor here, but uh, using the horses, uh, as I was saying, is not necessarily harder. Uh, it's just a different experience. What I really love about it is that it's fun and interesting and, and keeps me focused. I guess maybe in the sense that you're saying it's harder, it does require in my opinion, uh, having worked on tractor-based farms and a, a different horsepower farm and ours, it does require more observation because we don't have the ability or we choose not to use the, uh, the ability to use a rototiller, which is, you know, you can come in with a rototiller and just wipe the slate clean, so to speak, especially if you have a larger tractor or a spader or whatever you, you know, implement you want to talk about. We have the ability to work the soil is limited by how many horses we can put out there. And, that, you know, with a plow and a disc and a harrow, we can't pulverize the soil. Um, so we have to be more observant and, and cautious in terms of how and when and what we do to the soil, depending on the moisture and um, the time of year and the conditions and the overall conditions of the soil. So in that sense, I would say it is harder. But it allows us to become or forces us to to be more connected to what's going on out there. Um, otherwise, we might have consequences that we uh, don't want. As far as the actual interaction with the horses, there are benefits to it um, aside from it just being fun. Uh, one is obviously that they're compost machines. We do feed the horses off of a pasture through the majority of the season, but we we also buy in about 10 ton of hay a year. Uh, in order to feed them from local farmers around here. And that is, we're importing nutrients with that hay um, as long as we can properly manage it by making compost and, and spreading it. So there's that benefit. And then the other benefit that I see with horsepower is that every time that we're using the horses, because their input of 
feed is relatively stable over the course of the year. They do eat a little bit more in the winter because it's cold, but because that input is stable, the more that we use the horses, the cheaper per hour they become to use. So we're actually encouraged financially to use them and to think about how we can um, get the job done with them efficiently and effectively and, and often. So I like to say that they, they appreciate as opposed to depreciate like a tractor, even though obviously they are depreciating and will eventually pass away. Given that the economics of, of horse farming, and, and actually, as I understand it too, just owning horses is that you need to get them out and work them, right? They, they don't want to sit in a barn for a week, whereas a tractor really doesn't care if you leave it sit for a little while. How has that influenced the way that your farm is set up? Sure. Um, so there's not a lot to do in the winter around here other than make compost. So every day that I'm here, I, I bring them into the barn and they eat breakfast and stand. And uh, sometimes I'll go and brush them or pick their feet. And sometimes we'll do some exercise on a sled that we have just going kind of around the perimeter of the farm to get some physical exercise. But they get, uh, they definitely get the winter off uh, compared to what we ask them to do during the season. And there are, there are plenty of jobs that they could be doing, but given our property and our situation, uh, you know, we don't have a wood fireplace. We don't have a forest to log. Often we don't really have much snow in the winter here to do plowing and, 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 you know, playing around in the snow. So there are limited options for us to work them in the winter, but we do have a quite a long season here in Southeast Washington. Our elevation is only somewhere around 900 feet. And in fact, this winter, we could have started plowing already. It's been dry enough uh, in, in early February that we could, but I'm just not mentally <laughs> ready to do that yet. And there's no rush. But I did actually cultivate the garlic um, about a week or two ago um, to, for the first cultivation. And um, we dug some overwinter carrots. So we, we had them out. With, we have like a little bed lifter, uh, root lifter, we call it, to lift the carrots up for harvest. So that's kind of like right now. And then during the course of the season, there's, there's plenty of work in the spring when I'm plowing out, they'll be, they'll be harnessed six days a week. And uh, as you suggested, the more frequently that we are using them or working them, the better off they'll be and will be. And that's because physically they're getting more exercise um, and mentally they're getting more exercise for their health and for their performance and behavior that mental exercise is important. And, and they do get that mental exercise at least a little bit because I'm interacting with them every day right now in the winter. I'm putting the halter on. I'm asking them to walk in a certain place next to me while we walk to the barn. I'm asking them to stand still while I hook them up to the manger, even though there's some really nice enticing food right in front of them. So all those sorts of little things are, even though they aren't actually plowing, they're, they're work in the sense that I'm asking them to do something that goes against maybe their instinct. And then in the season, you know, after the spring plowing, we're prepping fields with using disc harrow and, and cultimultures and marking rows. And then we, um, do, like I said, do a, a lot of cultivation with horses and some harvest. So they're, they're keeping busy at least a couple of days a week throughout the summer. And then in the fall, we're doing a little bit more work with cleanup and planting cover crops. And then in the, uh, in the fall, they start to 
once once we it gets really cold, they start to get start to get that time off. In terms of your growing practices, then most farms that are doing at least most farms that I know of that are doing six acres of vegetables would be set up on a bed system. Is that how you guys have things laid out, or are you are you growing in single rows like I see a lot of horse farmers doing? Sure. So I guess I'll get more into the detail of the layout of the farm. It's an old uh, Italian farm uh, was settled in the early 20th century, and we live in the in the old farmhouse um, here. And it's right in the middle of the farm. We have a five-acre field um, to the west of us that's uh, about 600-foot-long beds. Um, with two wheel lines that came into property that we use for irrigation. And then on the other side of the driveway is the house, the pasture for the horses, and uh, about an acre of a smaller field that's maybe about 250 to 300 foot long that also has the irrigation pump house. And that smaller field is where we have our high tunnel uh, that we grow salad greens in the early uh, spring and tomatoes, peppers, eggplant in the summer. And then the rest of that small field, we have salad greens. So we call it the salad field and do rotation of, um, of actual what you're talking about in bed shape, um, you know, seeding every, every 10 days or so, you know, varying within the season um, of, of various lettuces, mustards, uh, and all that for a salad mix that we do. And that area, we will plow kind of in the spring with the horses and then use a BCS rototiller to fill one bed at a time uh, for seeding um, because we want to pack in more in that area. It's also, it would be very difficult to do, to just prep one bed with the horses in that base. There's also a smaller headland there. So it's a little harder to turn around. Oh, and we have a small raspberry patch over there as well. In the big field, we are, completely single row crop uh, out there. There are farms uh, at, uh, that do uh, work on a bed, um, more of a multi-row bed system, but we've chosen to just do single row because it's what makes the most sense for what we have in, in terms of equipment for our cultivators. Our limiting factor is often time for cultivation. So we're able to weed things um, a lot faster with the horses than with humans. And, and utilize them during the summer when there's not a whole lot of other plowing and other things to do. So it makes the most sense for us to, to do that single row cultivation. And frankly, I've been really surprised at how great the yields are in single row cultivation. There, there are certain crops that don't necessarily benefit from it, but we get um, extremely giant cauliflower and broccoli and, and other things that uh, really respond well to that extra space. So it's, it, ends up, it ends up working out pretty good for us. And do you do single rows even for crops like like carrots, things that we would normally think about being in a bed system just because they're not going to turn into a, a huge head of broccoli or a huge head of cauliflower? We do. Uh, garlic, carrots, beets, all those things are done in single row. And we are able to get the carrots seeded a little bit more, or more thick because they have that room to grow out sideways. They're not competing, you know, with a carrot row eight inches away. At a, at a previous farm, we did, did experiment with uh, double row beds using the horses where we had two rows of carrots. And it did work. But the cultivation factor became a bit of a challenge because we could only cultivate the paths 
and not necessarily right in row or in between the two rows of carrots. So we ended up doing a lot more hoeing and hand weeding in that situation. And because we started with just Layla and I and one employee our first season, we we wanted to do as much of that cultivation as possible with the horses. And I want to circle back. I was I was going to talk about this later because I I've noticed some pictures of this on your farm. But you mentioned a wheel line for irrigation. I, I we are going to we are going to circle back and talk some more about the horses and how that's set up. But I do just want to grab that right now. It, yeah. If you haven't farmed in the Intermountain West, a wheel line is something that you might not ever have seen. So can you tell us about that and how that works in your vegetable operation? Because I don't know that I've actually ever seen a wheel line in a vegetable operation before. Yeah, it's it's not uh, common. More 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 often you'll see people using hand lines, which are basically aluminum pieces of pipe, typically about 40 feet long, with a sprinkler head on one end and a way to latch them together. And they have a rubber gasket so that they, when the water flows through and there's high pressure, it seals it up and ideally doesn't doesn't leak out. And that's that's pretty common out here. And in fact, it's what we use at the other farm I worked at. But the wheel lines were here, so that's that's what we used because, well, one, it would be hard to dismantle them and put them somewhere, but also just, um, you know, because we lease the property, uh, we're not, we don't necessarily want to invest in a whole other irrigation system. But the wheel lines are basically the same thing as the hand line, only they're um, raised up off the ground on the aluminum wheels, and they have a small motor in the middle that uh, you can turn on and use hydraulics to move them back and forth across the field. So they're, they're parallel to the crop rows. And so they walk back and forth across the fields. Uh, and yes, they do damage the crops with the wheels a little bit. And they also damage the crops a little bit with, um, with the water puddles that form under the drain valves. Because they'll, you know, after it's gotten, you know, several hours of water on top of that, it dumps what's in the pipe in one spot you know, along, along the pipe. So it'll do a little bit of damage by putting too much water down um, when it drains, but it has to drain in order to move. Because you're essentially rolling those wheels and rolling the pipe and rolling the sprinklers all at the same time, right? right? You, yeah, the entire thing walks itself down just by the action of that motor. And it, it would not be able to do it with uh, water in the pipe. And then at the end of the pipe, it's hooked up to um, a header um, using, you know, just a lay flat or fire hose type uh, flexible pipe. And irrigation is important in Walla Walla because that's a dry place in the summertime. Yes. Like most of the Northwest, we get uh, the majority of our precipitation in uh, the course of three or four months in the winter. Walla Walla is at, in, the, in a valley at the base of the Blue Mountain Range, which uh, runs from the sort of northwest to southeast across the, 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 the southeast corner of Washington and the northeast part of Oregon. It gets snow and then the, the waterways are managed by humans so that the rivers and creeks that are flowing out of the Blue Mountains, uh, most of them are um, year-round. So the aquifers are being replenished regularly and therefore there is, I, I don't know, I hesitate to use the word plenty, but there is irrigation water um, underground for us to pump. And that's what we, we have a, a well on the property where we pump out for, for that irrigation. But not a lot of rainfall during the summer, or at least certainly not a regular rainfall during the summer. 
absolutely nothing that you can count on. Yeah. So to, so to kind of circle back to the, to the vegetables in the single row and setup that you've got, then you mentioned that that works really well for weed control. Tell me about what you're using for cultivators behind those horses. The primary tool that we're using is, um, is an early, uh, or it's from the first half of the 20th century called the McCormick Deering cultivator. That was the, the most common cultivator, at least out here in the West. Occasionally you'll see Oliver or John Deere or another brand, but McCormick is, you know, I don't want to say a dime a dozen because, you know, sometimes they can be hard to find, but there are plenty of them around. Um, and so we have a, a number of them all with different setups um, of sweeps uh, and sh- um, beat knives and cutaways. And um, I'm hoping to introduce actually some finger weeders this year um, on, on one of our cultivators. So we have the one that's set up for the you know primary cultivation. We have another one that's set up for hilling with hilling discs. Um, because we'll utilize those for in the potatoes, but also uh, in the leeks and the garlic to help keep the weeds down. And yeah, so it's it's an it's an old implement. It basically there's a uh, a steel tongue, which is a long square tube or round tube that goes up the middle that floats right above the crop. And then there's two large wheels, one on either side of the crop, and the horses stand up in front of the wheels they're walking on the same track as the wheels on either side of the tongue. And they're, they're hooked up by their leather harness to the front of the tongue for, for breaking and for, and for reversing. And then the tug or the ch- the chains that you'll see at the end of the harness are what attaches to the, to the implement um, closer to the driver. And there, that's where they, they're actually walking in, into their, into their harness and that pulls the implement along and, on the back of the cultivator, there's cultivator arms or gangs, uh, we'll call them, and they have different sorts of adjustments where you can pull them up individually if you need to raise one higher than the other or adjust them, the angle of them so that they can be more or less parallel to the ground. And then there's all sorts of places on, on those arms to attach different pieces of cultivator tools. And it sounds like primarily now you're using sweeps and shovels for your cultivating tools and then some hilling discs. Yeah. So um, I've really grown to like the, the cutaways. And then we use what are called peanut sweeps, uh, which are relatively flat compared to some of the, the Danish sweeps or uh, shovels. So they move a little bit less dirt depending on how deep they are. They're a little more flat to the ground than others. So we have two sets of those on each side and then the, the cutaways. And that's kind of the primary tool. And we have a couple other things that we'll put on there. If we want to, for example, hill, but not use hilling discs, I'll put on some, some steeper shovels closer to the crop. And that'll sort of toss in some dirt into the row in order to cover up cotyledon weeds. Right. Almost less of, of an actual hilling than it is a, uh, a burying of the weeds that are in the row. Exactly. And, but, you know, from, from the little bit of, research I've done, it sounds like we might need to sort of rethink how we're doing that if we end up introducing the, the finger weeders this year, because you don't want to actually fill in more dirt into the middle of the row when using the finger weeders. Now, you've only been on this farm. You said you're going into the fourth season here at, at Hayshaker Farm in College Place. I just want to say, you know, College Place, I I spent a lot of time around Walla Walla in the summertime, but it, right, it just sounds so boring next to 
Walla Walla, Washington. <laughs> you know, and then, then you got College Place. Like, ugh. Okay. But anyways, I know. <laughs> that, uh, off, off the subject here. So let's, so back to the, back to the weed control. What was the farm in when you guys started leasing it? Was it already a vegetable operation or was it hayfield or, or what was it? And, and how have you gone about dealing with the weed pressure that was on the farm when you guys started? It was leased out, um, by one of the old family members who lived here and there was wheat stubble when we arrived, which is grown uh, here in Walla Walla, both dry land and irrigated in, in large quantities. So it, it was not a surprise to find wheat stubble. However, you know, maybe uh, someday I'll tell a, um, a scary, you know, camp story about the time when we started hay shaker and, and, and the cutworms ate everything. We, we learned the hard way that in that wheat stubble was a very, nice habitat for cutworms to, to live and thrive. So we ended up plowing that right when we signed the lease that day, we planted garlic at the end of 2014. And in the spring we plowed and planted, uh, I think it was lettuce and kale we put in, uh, were the first crops that we actually put in the field outdoors. And then we started discovering cutworms, just tearing it all down and, uh, you know, freaking out like, Oh my gosh, is this is the entire farm going to get eaten by cutworms and we're not going to make a single penny this year. And it was a little scary at first, but eventually as the heat came on, the cutworms subsided, whether or not it had anything to do with the beneficial nematodes that we also sprayed uh, upon discovering them. I, I can't say for sure, but eventually they went away and then the weeds came. We have uh, all sorts of annual weeds, but we also have a perennial bindweed here, which is pretty prevalent uh, from what I've seen in the valley. And basically, it's something that you live with, and there's no way to ever eliminate it. Um, we just have to keep cutting it down, which is another reason why I like the peanut sweeps and the cutaways is because that slicing action actually cuts them back as they're emerging or if they've already emerged, whereas opposed to, say, basket weeders or, or a lily tine weeder, it's only just going to agitate it. It won't actually slice it. Right. I think especially important with those perennial weeds because they've got such a deep system that, yeah, like you just said, I mean, you, you, if you don't cut them off, you're really not doing anything to them at all. Right. Uh, to get back to the question, you know, it was wheat stubble when we arrived. We're most certain that it was farmed, uh, you know, uh, non-traditionally or what people say conventionally by spraying and so we've been um, farming it with organic practices ever since. And have you found controlling the annual weeds to be especially challenging? Or has that been a, have you had pretty good luck with that, with the systems that you've got in place? Overall, it's been, been okay. Uh, there are a couple crops where it has not worked out great. Um, with, I think with winter squash, you know, we will cultivate as long as we can. And then once they vine out, we haven't had the ability, obviously, to get in there with horses because we would destroy the crop. And then occasionally we might lose something, uh, you know, or just not get in there enough to, to keep the weeds down. And things grow extremely fast out here. It's super warm, long season, and we put down overhead water. So as you can imagine, the weeds are just uh, basking in that. But overall, the, the cultivation, uh, we're getting better at every year. And um, we're just kind of maintaining, you know, we're able to uh, efficiently harvest things for the most part. But we have, I, I, unfortunately, I'll say, uh, added to the made deposits in the seed bank. 
<laughs> easy to do in your first years of farming, even if you know that you shouldn't be allowing that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> How do you steer a, a horse-drawn cultivator? So there are two foot pedals. They're each connected to each other. So when you push down on the right, the left one lifts up via a small chain on a, on a little um, pulley or wheel up at top. And that changes on the McCormick's, it changes the angle of the wheel. And the, because those wheels are directly connected to the cultivator gangs or the cultivator arms, it moves them back and forth. And it's actually, uh, you know, uh, given how old and rickety some of these cultivators are, it, it, the, they're relatively accurate in terms of the steering. So I'm basically driving the team, but not looking at them a lot. I'll be looking up occasionally to just check them out and make sure everything is looking okay. But once you're out there cultivating for a couple of hours, they, they get to be in somewhat of an autopilot. And I'm mostly doing the steering from the feet and my hands are just kind of holding the lines loose enough so that I'm talking to them. I'm communicating with them, just saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here you know, telling them that I, I haven't dropped the lines and, and fallen over backwards, um, but not enough to bug them, just, just enough um, to tell them that I'm, that I'm with them. So I'm not doing a whole lot of driving left and right. And I would imagine that the horses, I mean, I, not that I actually know anything about horse farming, but I would imagine that those horses, they know that they're supposed to walk down the row, right? That's part of training a team of horses, they know that they're not supposed to be wandering all over the field. So they're going to kind of take care of themselves. And then you can really just focus on steering that cultivator and being as close to that crop as you can. Yeah. Most of the time, you know, unless they, unless they want to see if I'm awake, they might step off. Oh, interesting. And I suppose that's why you kind of <laughs> need to be talking to them and saying, you know, Hey, Hey, I am here. Sure. And I mean, it's even, it's like as quiet as possible. Just, you know, like the line in their mouth, in the bit in their mouth is just as little pressure as necessary because it's all about nuance. And I'm not necessarily a nuanced person, but it's, it's definitely teaching me how to be nuanced and to be patient and how to communicate on a different levels of complexity. And, you know, occasionally they will, if I'm find myself spacing out, a lot of times they will, you know, make a step sideways and step on the crop and I'll notice it and say, oh, hey, hey. And, you know, inevitably it's my fault. It's never, it's never their fault. And so when they do get off and step on a crop and you say, hey, hey, is that enough for them to go, oh yeah, Chandler's back there. Let's get back in line. Or do you have to work to actually get them back on track? I communicate with them through the line, um, but I'll, I'll also say something at the same time because I have the line. I actually, and everyone's different. Every, every teamster has a different way of doing it, but I, I communicate both verbally and, and physically through the lines connected to their mouth. And so I can do quite a bit of driving without ever having to say anything. And often it's not necessarily what you say, it's, it's how you say it. You know, it's the same with humans. You can say the nicest thing in the world, but if you have an angry you know attitude saying it, it, it doesn't translate. So I might, you know, the word hey is, I probably have 20 different ways to say the word hey to the horses, depending on what, you know, what they're doing, if they're misbehaving, if they've um, disobeyed me, or uh, if, they, if I just want them to notice something. So how did you learn to work with horses? I mean, when I say, you know, when I said earlier, like you make things harder by having the horses on the farm, I mean, 
learning to run a BCS or learning to drive a tractor is at least at a rudimentary level, I mean, it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. I mean, certainly you get better at it over time. And especially with tasks like, say, cultivating with a cultivating tractor, experience does matter. But, you know, really, when it comes to driving a tractor, it's a matter of you get on, you put the key in the tractor, you turn it on, and you go, right? So how did you learn how to farm with horses enough to where you felt comfortable saying, I'm going to start a horse-powered vegetable farming operation. Well, assuming the engine's working, it goes when you turn the key. That's true. <laughs> so I, that, I make that joke because, uh, you know, it relates back to why we've chosen to do a horsepower farm. And, and that is that I barely grew up swinging a hammer as a kid. And so um, I have a very uh, rudimentary, I would say, limited understanding of the internal combustion engine and hydraulics and all of that. I've definitely had to learn the hard way on some of the, the wheel line motors when I had to work on those. But the, the horse equipment is um, much easier for me to understand because it's, it's all simple mechanics. I'm able to fix and uh, work on uh, or uh, make changes to the equipment using simple oxycetylene torch and a little welder that I learned, you know, I took a a semester class at the community college and felt confident enough to uh, re-weld something when it broke or, or make a change to a piece of equipment. So that, for that reason, uh, you know, horse equipment is easier to understand if you come from a background of not being in a shop, such as myself. And I would say probably a lot of young farmers that I've met. But as far as actually learning how to work with the horses rather than just the equipment. Right. And then getting to the horses, that certainly was, where the, uh, the time and energy and effort was required to put in in order to feel confident doing it. I was exposed to horsepower actually in my first year farming out in Western Washington. There are a number of, of horsepower farms around the state and I saw it, I thought it was cool, but I didn't see it as something right off the bat that I you know, clicked and said, I want to do that. But a couple years later it did and I became interested to find out more. So. I, that farmer, uh, Betsy Wittick from Laughing Crow Farm on Bainbridge, uh, who's been farming with horses for many years, introduced me to her mentor and then took me down to the Small Farmers Journal auction in Oregon, which at the time was uh, in Madras. Um, and there's, it's basically a, a, a gathering of everyone using horses in the Northwest uh, where they also sell equipment. Um, so I was able to meet people there and realize that it was a possibility that, you know, that there are other people out here doing it. And then I started to learn from, from Betsy and from, and from uh, our other mentor, John, and had uh, lessons regularly in terms of how to interact with a horse and how to understand a horse, how to communicate with a horse. And then after that, how to start harnessing and driving and actually utilize them to get the job done that you want to. While I was farming on the West Side, I would go up about once a month and take those lessons. And then I was able to meet some farmers out here in Walla Walla, Emily and Andy Asmuth at Welcome Table Farm, toured their farm. And then that next season, they had offered an apprenticeship using uh, their two uh, draft horses. They grow vegetables and fruit and flowers out here. And so I came on as an apprentice, having vegetable experience for many years, but not the regular day-to-day horse experience. And so I had the I had the basics down just by taking lessons from, from a mentor. 
but uh, using the horses daily um, at welcome table was crucial toward to having it just click where it felt like the muscle memory started building in terms of how to put on the harness and, and how to be around the horses. Because like, like with the tools, I didn't grow up around horses or, or really many animals to, to speak of. So that was all sort of a learning experience for me. And, it, and maybe, maybe it would be easier for someone who's been around horses before, but I became interested and then bought my team, I think about four years after I seriously started investigating um, that as a possibility. But three of those years, I was working regularly with draft horses at a working farm. Did you buy your team at the same time you started your farm? Yes, a couple months in after we moved here. We bought them from an Amish farmer in Iowa who was recommended to us. Um, He's one of the more respected trainers that sells at the Waverly Sale out there. So I got his address. I wrote him a letter. And then... You know, a couple of days later, I got a phone call uh, from a, like a group telephone that they have out there. And, and we spoke for several hours over the course of a couple of calls. And he had a team he thought that would work for me. And I ended up hiring someone to trailer them out here from, from Iowa. And how long did it take you to get used to working with this new team of horses? Were, were the three of you, you and the two horses, able to jump in and start working together right away? Or did you have to do some training and, and getting used to each other? Well, when they arrived, it was winter. So all we could do is go around on the sled. I started by just bringing them into the barn and just being with them, you know, brushing them and, and picking their feet. And when I say pick their feet, I mean, there's sometimes mud or, or whatever caked up in there. And for the experience of asking the horse to lift their foot and for the health of the hoof, we pick their feet every time that we work them. Because it's kind of a, it's a trust and bonding experience for both of you, isn't it? Yeah, it's work. It, I mean, you know, we when I say work, it's, it's in a different sense of the word, like it's not necessarily plowing it, but it's, it's me asking them to do something and them complying or doing it. So we started there and then a couple of days later, we harnessed them and hooked up to a little stone boat sled that we have and just went around the farm. And I started doing that every day. Many of the days we were actually only hooked up to the sled for 10 to 15 minutes, but the frequency of it being every day was more important than the length of the actual work. In my opinion, maybe there, there would be, there would be disagreement from other teamsters, but having that daily interaction was, was the most important aspect of that. And so we started to learn to communicate and it, it definitely took a couple of months before we got into our stride of them understanding how I was communicating with them both verbally and and physically through the lines, because who knows how many people had driven them in their life previously. And everyone, everyone talks differently. You know, I'm speaking a different language to them. And so we're, we're learning to understand each other. And, and that being said, there, there was no problem. It was just a matter of, I'd like you to walk at this pace, please. Um, I'd like you to walk here, not there. You know, and just learning that. Uh, and every time we would be misunderstood and then come to understand each other, that strengthened that bond. So how does that work? I mean, again, to go back to the tractor analogy, when, when, when my tractor is not in the right place. I just, I turn the steering wheel, right? I mean, it's, it's a pretty Mm -hmm. easy correction. And 
when you say like, I want you to walk here and not there and them learning these things, how does that process actually unfold with a draft animal? Well, I can't speak to oxen, but when horses, mules, and donkeys, there's a bit in their mouth and a leather line that's connected to the bit on either side. And they have been trained to understand that the tension on, on the right side means to turn right. And, and of course, now that, now that you say that, that seems like I kind of remember that from horse camp when I was in sixth grade. That seems a little obvious, but, but part of what you're saying is that it, they're, they're, as you're doing that, it's not just a steering process. It's not just saying, turn right here, turn left here. It's saying, I want you to walk in this place. And that's part of what they're learning as you're doing the steering process. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then there's, there's so much nuance within that because it's, do, did I tug on it quickly or did I have a slow pull and how much pressure? And did I put pressure on both the left side and the right side at the same time? Was there more pressure on the right side and less on the left? All those mean different things to the horses. And then there's the complication that I might not necessarily tell them what I want to tell them. And so I'm also teaching my muscle memory in how to communicate to them every time I'm out there. I don't know. That just sounds complicated to me. It's harder to explain really than it is to do. I mean, ultimately <laughs> you, pull, you, you pull on the right side when you want to go right and you pull on the left when you want to go left. All right. So I think this is a good spot for us to take a break, get a quick word from a couple of sponsors. Then we'll be right back with Chandler Briggs from Hayshaker Farm in, I'm just going to call it Walla Walla, Washington. <laughs> That's fine. That's what we have on our, on our sign. <laughs> Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Haas Tools. Haas Tools is the complete solution for all your market farming tools and supplies. Keep rows weed-free with their time-tested American-made wheel hose and the best wheel hoe attachments. Their precision seeders have a proven seed plate designed for planting a wide variety of seeds. And you can grow the best transplants with their heavy-duty PropTech seed trays. They're going to last forever. And you can keep your crops healthy with their drip irrigation and fertilizer injection systems. Haas also provides comprehensive selection of conventional and OMRI certified pest control products at the most affordable prices. Free shipping and outstanding customer service. Shop online or request a free catalog at HaasTools.com. And perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost Company. Vermont Compost helps plants make sugar since sunshine. It's been doing it since 1992. Through 23 years of producing the best potting soils you can buy, Vermont Compost Company founder and owner Carl Hammer has stayed intimately involved in the company, working with a small staff of committed individuals to provide compost-based potting soils that are just chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients. The people at Vermont Compost Company have a practical understanding of the challenges that organic growers face, and they combine that knowledge with a comprehensive understanding of soil and plant science and an intuitive comprehension that often has Carl and his crew sticking their noses into a handful of compost and inhaling deeply as though they were sampling a fine brandy. Vermont compost is the real thing, built on consistency instead of glitz. Like the donkey on their logo, Vermont compost potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast, they're consistent, and they stubbornly make certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. By the way, the donkeys are the real thing. And you get a little bit of donkey manure in every batch of Vermont compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com. 
All right. And we're back with Chandler Briggs from Hayshaker Farm in Walla Walla, Washington. So Chandler, you know, I think for most people around the country, when you think of Walla Walla and you think of farming, well, okay. When you think of Walla Walla, there's two things that come to mind. A, it's a, it's a relatively infamous state penitentiary that you've got there. And then, and then there's onions, Walla Walla sweet onions. And, and so what is, what is your crop mix look like? And, and how, how does that relate to the agriculture that surrounds the Walla Walla area? Sure. So I'll start by saying that primary agriculture out here is dryland wheat. Um, We're surrounded both at the foothills of the Blue Mountains and to the north, the, the Palouse, the famous wheat growing region, um, by a lot of wheat and a little bit of garbanzo beans and peas. In the valley bottom, there's more variation in the agriculture. There's uh, alfalfa and hay, wine grapes, and, uh, and also wheat uh, irrigated. And you'd think that they're, given the fact that the Walla Walla wheat onion is our state vegetable and People all around the country have heard of it. There's actually not a ton of space dedicated to the Walla Walla sweet onion when you're, you know, going around the valley. But that being said, it's still a very important economic crop here. Uh, it's sold by a number of vendors at the farmers market and exported all across. Uh, I don't know how far it goes, at least around the northwest and the west coast. So we we do not grow sweet onions because there are so many people who are doing it at a larger scale that we just don't want to compete at that, given that we're only growing six acres of vegetables total. So we do almost everything else. We have everything from potatoes and peppers and tomatoes and eggplant to uh, salad mix and broccoli, cabbage. And then we like to sort of describe what we do as, as kind of being dual purpose. Like we, we grow the staple crops, like I mentioned, carrots and beets and all that. Things that pretty much everyone can identify in a grocery store or at the farmer's market. And then we also grow specialty crops like chicories and spigariello and celeriac and leeks, which, you know, maybe some people think that those are normal, but you'd be surprised at how often, maybe you wouldn't be surprised at how often you have to explain what those things are and how to cook them uh, when selling at the market. But Layla, uh, my partner, came to farming from a culinary background. And I've certainly enjoyed cooking and, and eating. So we, uh, we approach um, the farm as a what do we like to eat and what do we want to see on the plate of our community. So we grow a lot of different things and utilize the variation in color and the spread at our market stand in order to attract people to it and also to the restaurants that we sell to. So as I mentioned, there's a, a very large or burgeoning uh, tourist industry here because of the wine industry. There's over a hundred wineries and every year there's more acreage planted to wine grapes. And so a lot of people are coming here from uh, Seattle, Portland, Boise, and, and other smaller areas around the Northwest for the weekend. And they all want to eat food. The restaurants that we sell to are, have been extremely supportive ever since we started. We average about a little, just under, under half of our sales are to restaurants. Uh, and then about 40% to the two farmers markets that we do, and the rest is to uh, a grocery store that we connect with. When you guys moved to Walla Walla, why Walla Walla? That's a good question. I so I moved here as I mentioned to work at Welcome Table Farm to get that experience 
using draft power at a vegetable farm. And I didn't necessarily anticipate staying here. I had come from the west side of the state and was had been farming over there and really uh, thought that I would go back. But I fell in love with the soil, uh, which is beautiful, no rock and just gorgeous soil. There's plenty of water for irrigation uh, relative to other areas. And also, it's, uh, we saw an opening in the, uh, in the market here um, in terms of specialty vegetables and um, maybe a need for more diversity in the marketplace. The majority of the other farmers in the region that are doing vegetables are what they call truck farmers or people who have been uh, farming here for, um, you know, uh, their families have been farming here. They're doing onions and corn and, and asparagus, but not necessarily doing the specialty stuff. And given the, uh, the wine industry and the colleges, there's some interest in, in something different than just, you know, a green head of cabbage. They're, you know, they're people who are excited about um, purple Napa cabbage and figuriello and uh, radicchio and, in a fancy salad mix that has more than just lettuce in it. So we've really, due to our interest in, in that from a culinary perspective and the desire for people to buy that stuff, we saw an opening. Whereas many other parts of the state where we had been considering going, we saw as very saturated where there were just a number of amazing farmers who we, you know, who we're friends with and know, but competing in a marketplace where there's already so many amazing farmers seems daunting. Whereas even though it was smaller community here, we saw uh, the desire of people to, to bring on another farm into the community. And Walla Walla is an interesting place for, for this reason that you described about the wine industry, because that wine industry didn't exist 40 years ago or even I think 30 years ago. I mean, it really is the last 20 that that's taken off and has driven the kind of tourism and the kind of, I I would think the the kind of the upping of the food game that you're talking about there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people who grew up here uh, my age talk about how half the downtown was, you know, empty storefronts. And now for better or worse, the half of them are, are wine tasting rooms. Um, But there's also a number of excellent restaurants here and they're, excited about buying our produce. So we're more than happy to oblige. And do you feel like that's a stable marketplace for you guys? I mean, is the, is the wine industry and what's happening in Walla Walla something that's there to stay? Or is there a chance that this is kind of a flash in the pan for that region? I do think that there is a strong foundation here with the wine industry because it takes so long from planting a grape to actually selling a bottle of wine. It's a long-term investment for people to, to expand the market here. And every year they're planting grapes. They're not ripping them out. Um, and so it shows that people are invested in, in, making, in making a living here um, uh, as, as wine producers. So I, I'm pretty confident that it's going to be here for at least a little while. And maybe it's the hip new kid on the block in terms of the wine industry. And maybe it won't always be, but many places that used to be hip but aren't the new kid on the block anymore are still producing wine and and uh, and doing really well, whether it's in California or Oregon or Washington. And so that that wine industry, I mean that that drives a lot of tourism, which drives restaurant sales. But have you also found that the farmers market and the grocery store is that an environment where you're able to sell? the unique specialty and organic crops at a premium price? Um, to a lesser extent, but yes, somewhat. It's, it's definitely taken um, 
some time um, to introduce things and explain or educate how they're used. Um, but uh, we've, we're finding that people are, are open and interested to it. Maybe less so in the grocery store, but uh, no, it's definitely the local the local uh, community as well. Um, we're seeing um, lines at the farmers market, and so we see that as a good sign. And we're seeing people, uh, you know, buy stuff all winter long from the grocery store, even though. Uh, there, there's stuff from California on the same shelf that costs less, uh, and and so we're we're happy to um, to see that people are interested in buying our stuff. Is there the equivalent of a natural food store or a, a food co-op there in Walla Walla, or are you squeezing into a conventional grocery store when you're selling to that retailer? So our, our the primary grocery store that we work with is a Harvest Foods, which is a um, regional, locally owned grocery store. So they have the ability to make choices about how to what to offer based on their community needs. So they approached us last winter, a group of growers, and um, we started selling their our uh, vegetables and flowers and eggs and meat. Um, and it's it's been a really good partnership, and we're going to keep building on it next year. That being said, there is no natural food store cooperative. Um, so to speak, in Walla Walla. But if someone wants to start one, we uh, give us a call. Okay. <laughs> is there a reason that you've chosen not to go the CSA route? As you know, so many young farmers do choose to go that CSA route, but I notice that that's, that's not a way that you're marketing your food. Yeah. Um, because we're on lease ground, we didn't want to do any sort of marketing directly off the farm in case we moved, um, but also because of just the the way the farm is, it doesn't, we don't have a space to do CSA distribution. And also the farm that I used to work at has a very excellent CSA. And so we decided to go the restaurant route and have Emily focus more on, on offering, you know, uh, the CSA. It's something that I've, you know, many farms I've worked on have had CSAs and I appreciate the concept, but it just didn't seem to make the most sense for, for what we were going to do. I think it makes a lot of sense to have some focus and to choose your marketing outlets deliberately. So tell me about the farmer's market there in Walla Walla, since that is such an important part of your business. Uh, yeah. Uh, the farmer's market in downtown Walla Walla has been going for over 20 years and it features a number of farmers who have been there since the beginning, ever since they started with uh, sweet onions and asparagus and, and sweet corn and apples to now, you know, having uh, us new farmers with our, you know, unique produce. And, uh, and um, I think that there's, there's also five different taco stands at the, at the market. <laughs> Are there things that you've done at that market to really make your stuff stand out besides just being a little bit weird and different with what you're bringing? Yeah, I, I think so. And in fact, there was, there was a podcast maybe a year or two ago of yours that we were listening to and the grower he was, in, he was in Ohio and he had moved there from Maine and he was saying all these things about his market layout. And Layla and I were looking at each other saying, yes, that's, that's what we do. Or like, that's what we're thinking, you know? And some of those things I think of are, are sort of the flow of the, of the market stand. We started originally at our first market with, you know, salad greens and radishes uh, in our first season. Um, and I, you know, it was a 10 by 10, 10. And I think we made less than a hundred bucks in our first market. And now we've expanded to a 10 by 30 foot, uh, two tents put together where we have a distinct entrance with little 
uh, blue plastic shopping basket with um, kind of a, a stack of root vegetables. And then it moves through into these nice oak wooden box crates or boxes where we're able to put loose items and, and do some stacking with little chalkboard signs all the way to the other end of the market tent where we have two people with a single cash box and two scales doing the checkout. And in the busiest time of the season, we have three people working. One person is just back stocking straight the entire morning. And then we have two people checking out. And we even then we still get a line and it's worked out pretty well. Another thing we think about is, is the color. What, you know, visually, what are they customers seeing? And so we'll have really drastic color changes between each crate where it'll be uh, that bluish green broccoli, uh, white and purple cauliflower, uh, you know, red Italian peppers, uh, purple eggplant. And just um, the saying that we've kind of adopted is eat the rainbow um, because we believe a, you know, a diet varied in color is um, both fun and, and healthy. So we like to set up our stand in that way where we're showcasing the diversity of what we grow and what people can eat. That layout sounds really interesting to me because it almost sounds like you've got it set up like it's a little a little store in and of itself. People are actually coming into your stand. Am I right with what you said that there's not really a way out other than to go past the cash registers at the other end? Exactly. Someone comes into the stand and the only way out is to exit where the cash registers are because we have it's essentially four eight foot tables in a big L. So there's one at the at the edge of the of the stand and then three in a row. And so we have a little bit of space between our shade cloth and our banner where we can, you know, work behind. And then it, we give the majority of the space under the tent to the customer and then a small island at, at the other edge of the tent where we put tomatoes primarily in the summer and then winter squash. And then on the edge of the island we'll also add or subtract crates backed up as needed to display um, melons or peppers or something else that couldn't fit under. So because it's so hot here and it's an outdoor market, we, we really, we have a dark uh, color tent cover. Uh, it's like a dark green. So it really provides a lot of shade. And then we wrap the edge of the, the tent with a shade cloth. So it really gets nice and dark and slightly cooler in there. And as you said, it's, it's a little storefront where, in the way that like they get you at, at the Ikea, like you have to walk through the entire store and see everything. Um, so, and people are essentially waiting in line right in front of the other things that they could potentially buy. Right. So it's sort of like when you're, I mean, basically it's like being at the checkout stand at the grocery store and, and there's all the mints and the Tic Tacs and the candy bars. Right. But instead of that, we have garlic. Right, which is <laughs> right, which is so much better than the National Enquirer. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, although that gives me no. <laughs> now, I I wonder, do you find that people are sometimes reluctant to to enter the tent to to kind of come into that environment? Because I would think again, if you know that once you get in there, getting out is going to mean kind of running a gauntlet. Do people just kind of go, you know, I'm just not going to do that at all? It's hard to say. I don't know. I haven't really had enough free time that when there, when there is a line is when I'm busy and can't pay as much attention as to what's going on out there. Um, you know, I'm answering questions. Uh, sure. But um, I don't know if it deters anyone. I think if it does, it's more so offset by the fact that 
oh, look, there's a bunch of people over there. Something good must be over there. Right. You know, it, like it attracts more people by having a crowd under the tent. Whereas, you know, it, and I've been there when you're standing at your stall and there is nobody coming up to it, you know, it's hard to look busy or, or look enticing. You know, you're standing there with your arms crossed and you're sweaty or you're cold. And, but when you're busy, it actually, it's, you know, it's a perpetual machine in that sense is that it just drives more business is what I think. You've talked a lot about being on leased land. Are you guys actively looking for land to buy? Is the leased land a long-term arrangement? Tell me a little bit more about how that setup is working for you. Well, uh, we found a place on Craigslist while we were looking for a place to farm and, um, and it's worked out really well. We don't have a long-term lease, but the landowner is, is in no rush to do anything with the property or have someone else live here. I think he's pretty satisfied with the situation. I would say we're passively looking for a place uh, of our own that fits you know, what our needs are and, and how we would like to grow or uh, change the business as, as it gets bigger. But um, there's actually not a whole lot of properties that come up that fit that. And so we've only looked at a couple and talked about it, but you know, it's kind of related back to the, the wine industry uh, question, which is that it, it does drive tourism and it brings money into our local economy and, and uh, directly or indirectly helps us have a business. But it also as a double-edged sword drives up the cost of living here and drives up the cost of land especially if a person wanting to sell land thinks that their land should be sold for wine grape prices. Yeah, I would think that that is a little bit of a double-edged sword for getting a farm up and going in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, with, with money into the economy to spend on our produce also comes uh, money that makes it um, more costly to live here. Do you use the draft horses as part of your marketing? Is this something that, that your customers know about and that drives them to purchase from your farm rather than purchasing from another local operation? Uh, we do use them for marketing, although I don't know if I'd say that anyone outright chooses to support us because of it. I just think that people see it as us being transparent and making an effort to have a, a, at least a, a minuscule impact on climate change. Now, you also mentioned that you're using those horses as part of the harvest operation. Tell me how they fit in, how you're using them with the harvest side of things. Sure. So we have two implements that we use for harvesting crops that the horses pull. One is early 20th century potato digger that we pull behind a cart. And like most potato diggers you've seen, at least the older styles, they have a ground drive chain that shakes the potatoes uh, along and the dirt falls through and then the potatoes fall down on top. And then you come along and collect them. The second implement is a newly manufactured uh, root lifter, which is basically an undercutter bar that um, has uh, a winch. So we are able to pull it out of the ground and then drop it back down in. It has a bolt that allows us to change the angle of the blade to dive in a little deeper or more shallow. Um, and then with the winch, we're able to dictate the depth. And so we use that one tool, which was built by um, a horse farmer in Oregon who um, refurbishes and builds equipment to harvest leeks, garlic, and carrots primarily. Really anything that you can get in there and undercut and loosen up to make it easier to pull out. 
Yeah. And in fact, I've actually come through and listed out um, some um, brassica plants uh, when they were done. And when we wanted to get the, that debris out, we've, we've come in with that as well. I think I used it to take out some uh, overwintered parsley that was going to feed. And so, yeah, anything that you want to get in there and, and lift it, make it so that a human can do the rest of the work and pulling it out, we use it for that. When you're using horses and when you say, I'm using my horses for harvest operations, of course, I, I can't help but think about the fact that horses poop. What are you doing to mitigate the risk that's presented with horses out in your field, especially when you're close to harvest time? Well, part of being with the horses regularly means also sort of knowing their behavior and their personality. And so, for example, Dusty, uh, the horse that we often use on the left side, is prone to pooping immediately after leaving the barn. So because I know that, I'm able to take them off to a spot where that's okay and it's not directly on the crop and then go immediately to work. Whereas the other horse almost never poops. Uh, while he's working and most of the time just does it in the barn where we're able to collect it and put it on the compost pile. So we're able to take care of the majority of that by just knowing their personality and, and, and behavior. The rest of it, we if, if they poop in the field, we just don't harvest from that spot. And um, if it's near something where we want to harvest, we'll come out and collect it. But most of the time, honestly, it happens pretty rarely where they're harvesting anywhere near something that we want to harvest soon. Um, they'll poop when we're plowing or disking, but then that's, you know, getting turned into the soil. And then most of the time that falls under the organic standards of what, by the time we harvest something from that, that ground that we're plowing in March, you know, we're harvesting the potatoes in August. So it falls within the uh, organic standards rules. I noticed from looking at the map of your farm, you guys have really long rows. Is that a function of the horses? Using horses is a little easier when the rows are longer because you're turning around less often. When you, every time you turn around, you know, your, your cultivator is not on the ground. But it's not to say that we chose to do it this way. It's just the way the farm is laid out. In fact, it felt a little daunting when we first moved here to have such long rows, given that the longest rows I had worked previously were 250 feet. 600 really felt like a lot. Right. We've gotten used to it. And, um, I know of one other horse-powered farm that has rows this long, and has, it's worked out for them pretty well. You know, using that single-row layout, are you guys organizing your crops into blocks of 10 or 12 or 20 rows, or are you really organizing your farm kind of row by row by row? It varies by crop, but most of it is row by row. And in fact, it's sometimes split rows. There are a number of crops that we plant by block. Potatoes, garlic, leeks, fall brassicas. Those are the prime. Yeah, those are the primary ones. So those end up in blocks. But uh, everything else, from broccoli to lettuce heads to fennel and um, radicchio, are all either split rows or single row. Are most things that you're growing just single crop? So that if you, you know, if you've got a, a row of broccoli and you're done harvesting the broccoli. Is there a need to get that out right away and get that, that row flipped over and turn into another vegetable? Or are you just following that with cover crops when you can? Most of the time, we are not flipping single rows like that. Uh, we're, we don't farm quite that intensively. Most of the farms use single, not double crop. But there's maybe a small section where it does 
where uh, the early spring radishes, spinach, and lettuce heads are turned over into being something else later in the summer. I'll elaborate on that, which is that it's, it's a little hard sometimes to um, work just a single row uh, for planting. But it, we have done it a couple of times, but with the horses, it makes more sense to do a block at a time. That's what I was thinking from the kinds of implements that you had described. So we actually, just this last year, acquired a two-way plow, which has a left hand and a right hand uh, moldboard, which allows us to do those long road, but not that wide block a little easier um, because of the, you know, we're not planting the field all out at one time with one crop. We might plow different sections depending on which, you know, when we need to plow it in for planting and, and also, you know, where the cover crop is at in the spring. So that tool has been really useful. And that was a, that's a newly manufactured piece of equipment, even though most of the stuff we have is, is older. So with that, Chandler, we're going to turn to our lightning round. First, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round is brought to you by Local Food Marketplace. Are you trying to scale up without the right systems? Instead of juggling email and text orders, spreadsheets for harvest, packing, and delivery, and a separate invoicing system, Local Food Marketplace's software platform will help your farm automate these tasks and decrease errors with its fully integrated system for online orders, inventory management, order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Easily configure the system to manage multiple sales channels, customer types, price levels, and delivery routes. The platform also offers lot number traceability and an option to collaboratively sell products with other producers. Contact them via their website, localfoodmarketplace.com, to schedule a free consultation on how Local Food Marketplace can help you efficiently manage customer orders from packhouse to your customer's doorstep. So Chandler, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Oh, well, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how much time I've spent thinking about this question uh, because I hear it on every show, but it still doesn't make it any easier. I think it has, I'd have to say the McCormick Deering Cultivator because of how versatile it can be in terms of what we can attach to it and how many things it can achieve, whether it's cultivating or marking rows or uh, this year we just got a fertilizer spreader so we can side dress uh, with organic fertilizer or we have a liquid fertilizer so there are a number of different jobs that we can attach to it and do and it's also just really the quintessential horsepower tool like when i think about horse farming i, I think of the, of the cultivator as being uh, uh, the tool that represents it it's also was made so long ago and yet it's still so relevant and effective today and so you know it's a good tool when it's been used for decades or centuries, as the case may be. That's so cool. Yeah, right. We haven't talked a lot about your partner, Layla, but I'm, so I'm just going to ask, what's Layla's farming superpower? Layla's farming superpower, it's hard to nail down, but I think she is so good at farmer's markets, whether it's, you know, all those ideas were, were mostly Layla's ideas that I talked about with the farmer's market. She has expanded and made beautiful our stand, and she's also fantastic at running the stand. So she's lead on the, on the market. Um, she's great with customers. She has the culinary background, but is not intimidating uh, when she talks to people about you know uh, how to cook something or how to prepare something. And because she's from France, I think that also sort of adds a little bit of interest uh, for the customers to to trust her for for their culinary uh, questions. So she's just, she's just great at the farmer's market. 
And what's your favorite crop to grow? What month is it? <laughs> that's, that's my answer. It's, it's too hard to choose. I think I'd have to say probably sweet peppers. I love eating them and growing them. And we do a bunch of different varieties of different uh, Italian corn-shaped peppers and um, pickling peppers. And uh, we've just started growing the Basque Espelette peppers, which we hope to convert into a dry pepper powder to sell at market next year. And finally, Chandler, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I think I would tell myself to not push so hard on my body. Uh, and even though it feels like we're invincible when we're you know, in our 20s, in order to, to keep farming, to stay farming as we get older, to, to utilize, not be so afraid of utilizing tools um, uh, or equipment that might make the job easier. When I first started, I was very interested in, in doing a farm that was solely human powered. Uh, I came to it from, from gardening uh, when I was in college and really thought that that's the direction I wanted to go. But I made the realization as I got older that, you know, tools are, uh, exist for a reason. They're, they're there to help us get the job done easier and faster and give us some free time at the end of the day to enjoy other things. Chandler, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you very much, Chris. It's been a pleasure. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 163 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Briggs. That's B-R-I-G-G-S. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. If you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes, leave us a review, talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. And finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there. Keep the tractor running.